809 Restaurant and Lounge in Inwood, New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all kinds that make their home in what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we're turning the spotlight on professional actor, director, martial artist, and fight choreographer, David Enzuil. David is a member of Labyrinth Theater Company and Rising Phoenix Repertory. He's also the founder of Uncle Dave's Fight House, a collective of fight and intimacy directors working to bring a unique approach to fight choreography and sexual stage violence. We'll talk to him about that and so much more. First, David, let me welcome you to In What Artworks On Air. How you doing? All right, dude. <laughs> You're feeling no pain. It's only like 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Seriously, though, it is really good to see you. It's been too long. That's what happens when you're in a pandemic. It keeps us apart. I see you all the time on social media. I see, so I look at your posts and all that. So I keep track. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You're the only one who cares. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of this day and age, we are, of course, entering the fifth month of New York's response to the novel coronavirus pandemic. It's, it may feel like we're living in an unpublished Beckett play right now. <laughs> maybe Twin Peaks, maybe a David Lynch uh, episode that yet to be turned in with the, uh, the eerie music as we walk down the streets of Inwood. But shops and stores are gradually opening as the city enters phase four, TV, film, Broadway. Uh, that's another story, uh, which we'll get to. But first, David, how are you doing? How are you and Sean doing? How's everybody doing? We're, we're doing all right. You know, we're, we're very fortunate. We're comfortable in our space and we have the park right next door to us. So we have we have a little nature and we're planning we're planning, uh, you know, we planned we planned well. I'm well built and well trained for crisis. <laughs> so it is a crisis. So uh I think the, the park has been, I feel the same way because I don't live too far from you. And um, it's been a respite. Like Inwood's been like this kind of like forest of Arden to us in many ways, very rejuvenating and also keeps us somewhat sane, I hope. Oh, yeah. And and it's it was it was one of the neighborhoods that was like um, least devastated, I think, or one of the last to really be hit hard. And um, I know in my building, <laughs> I was the Cassandra of my building. Like nobody, nobody took it seriously. And I was walking around offering masks and, and gloves, and everybody was like, "No, I social distance religiously." And I'm like, I'm "Like, okay, you think that's enough? <laughs> All right." Well, David, your work extends beyond directing. You're an actor and a playwright. You're a member of two off-Broadway companies, Labyrinth and Rising Phoenix. Things have been tough for theater companies during lockdown. So I just wanted to check in with you and see how you and your companies are faring at the moment. Well, that's, that's, that's really good uh, and thoughtful. Uh, I, I can speak mostly about Labyrinth because Labyrinth is taking this time to really go through a transformation. Because with everything that's happening in the macrocosm of, of the world and our country in particular, it's, it's being definitely reflected within the microcosm of our company. And so within our company, we're really addressing things that have to do with systemic white supremacy and dismantling racism and misogyny and microaggressions. And, and those are things that we're really working on with professional facilitators. We're educating ourselves and taking the time to really come out of this sort of incubation period, this, this cocoon of you know, global pandemic and be able to function 
better and more uh, efficiently and cleanly. And that's, that's how Labyrinth is doing. They're moving forward with the summer intensive and the intensive ensemble. And I'll be teaching for the intensive ensemble this year on Zoom. So that'll be my first experience teaching for Zoom. So I had to redesign a whole workshop. And um, Rising Phoenix rep, Daniel Talbot, who's the artistic director is on the West Coast. And I know he's really kind of mostly writing for television. He's writing on a few TV shows and producing some films and winning some spots on festivals and awards and such. So I think he's been focused on the West Coast predominantly, uh, but we did work with him on The Convent at the beginning of the year, last year. So that's how they're doing. And how I'm doing, I I, I promised myself I wasn't going to create anything. (laughs) <laughs> for as long as we were shut down, I said, I'm going to take time to read all those books that I've been putting off. I'm going to call all my friends that I never call because I'm too busy. I'm going to call my cousins who I never talked to for years at a time. That's what I've been doing. So like I've been reconnecting and I've been re-educating myself and reading those, you know, 25 books on my shelf one by one and getting through. I'm reading the Bible for the first time. I just got through with the book of Numbers yesterday and starting Deuteronomy today. So that's where I'm at. I would go, what's in there? You know, I want to see. <laughs> I hear it's really good. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, okay? <laughs> well, I can tell you. <laughs> well, people, people got wiped out left and right over there, so it's kind of perfect for right now. <laughs> it really is. And there was plagues left and right, and it's like people don't learn. They're whining, complaining. God just smites them. <laughs> like, I could see you going like to Amazon, going like, what could you recommend for a pandemic? And they just go, <laughs> they give you the Bible. Well, I'm, I'm kind of yeah, digging the Old Testament, you know. See, I, I thought, I didn't know what the book of Numbers was. I, I heard something about a census, but it's all about war. It's about going to a war. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and so I'm like, whoa. So I started reading this article that was sent to me from Oxford, and it talks about origin origin of Alexandria, who was a third century, like this amazing uh, theological scholar. And he really, (laughs) in the third century AD, really kind of set the groundwork for white supremacy. It was everything that went into Christianity to kind of demote everyone who wasn't white to subhuman level. And and it was so as a handbook for slavery that they kind of referred to that was all kind of ingrained for thousands of years. So that's why it's so tricky because it's been they got they got a hell of a head start. They certainly they certainly did. <laughs> and he was the most popular theological writer of, of that time. So he had like a fleet, he had sponsors, he had patrons who paid for scribes to like a factory just crank out his books. And this is what we've been fighting against for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> But no, no telling the present, right? Yeah. For those who don't know, from going to Labyrinth, it started off as Latino actor base, right? Yeah. It was, That's how it was when it started off. It started off at Intar as yeah. the Intar Latino actors base. Which and, actually fought against the idea of, I mean, systemic racism and, and, and putting voices for Latin, Latin Americans and Latin, Latins of all kinds. Latinx, they say now. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a reaction because it was a production of Death and the Maiden and there were no Latino actors involved. And so when asked why that was the case, and they said, well, we couldn't find any that were good enough. And so John Ortiz and Gary Perez, who are the founders of the company, along with David Deblinger and Paul Calderon, 
they said, you know what, we're, we're going to put together a group and let them know exactly where we are. And they did. And so 29 years later, Labyrinth is still kicking and just got 13 award nominations for Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven. and Which you were also a part of. Which, which I, was, I was fortunate enough to be a part of. Yeah, Stephen threw me a bone. <laughs> It's so nice to Stephen do that. He's very nice. He's very nice indeed. Um, so take your time, relax, enjoy your books, finish the Bible, and then when you get back, you'll be ready to roll, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, David, you are, among other things, a fight choreographer for stage and screen. What exactly is a fight choreographer? I, I use the term fight director, but you use the term fight choreographer, which people tend to understand a little bit easier. Um, because when you see a fight in uh, a play or film or television, it's often like meticulously detailed and choreographed by not only expert combatants, but by a choreographer. And so depending on the style of the film or the TV show, like the fights in Marco Polo and Daredevil are amazing. And they're like really intricate and take like top notch martial artists to to execute them. But then you might have something like funny and messy, like in in a, you know, something like you see something in, uh, I'm watching this Netflix series called Kim's Convenience and the father knows Hapkido and he does a real Hapkido move, but it's also like really funny the way his his daughter's friend who gets thrown has to land. And so it's like, it's sloppy and it's messy and it looks, uh, it looks painful, but it's also really funny. I love funny fights. But someone has to map it out, choreograph it, actors have to practice it, and then it has to not only tell the story of the violence of the moment, hit the tone correctly, fit into the scene, but fit into the overall arc of the play. And that's what a fight choreographer does. They make sure that that particular piece of storytelling fits in just right. Because it is storytelling. It's a part of the whole. It doesn't begin with saying, stage directions, they fight. And you're like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, a lot of the classics say that. <laughs> I know. Which what I'm saying, like, is, is you, you go back, like, way, way back. I mean, your interest, we got you started in theater, if I remember correctly, was about your obsession with Greek and, and, and Roman mythology mm-hmm. when you were younger. Can you talk a little about what drew you to the stories and, um, you know, the Aeschylus, the Orstaya, Sophocles, those plays? You know, it's really, really great stuff. And you're right. It says, okay, they fight, or alarms, right? That's my favorite one, of course. And everyone's <laughs> like, what's an alarm, man? <laughs> But I didn't know exactly what it was when I was five, but I liked the word because it sounded like alarm. Right. And, and, but, and so it made sense of like, I could just imagine like all these like bells and sirens going off. True. So <laughs> you didn't have any. You're just like, wait, did the Greeks have like, you know, electricity? <laughs> no, but they had cisterns. Right. So, um, but uh, the, the Greek myths and contemporary myths, superheroes, uh, comic books specifically, were both introduced to me at around the age five by my dad. He just loves to read, and he loves to read history in particular. Well, he's he's not alive anymore, but I, uh, to me, he's alive uh, in my in my mind. <clears throat> and so he one time I had chicken pox, and he brought me these five Legion of Superheroes, Spider Man, Fantastic Four comic books, 
And I fell in love with him instantly. And then he also brought me this, this really thick, beautifully photographed and illustrated book on ancient Greek civilization and Minoan society. And I instantly made the, the correlation between the two. Like I could totally, and some of the, there was even crossover, like there was, you know, Hercules in both superheroes and, and the myths. And then uh, Venus or Aphrodite in, uh, in both the superhero comic books and myths. And so I could instantly make the connections. And that's how I fell in love with them. And I was put into martial arts very young. I was 11. I had already been watching, you know, that TV series with David Carradine, Kung Fu, and The Legend of Billy Jack. And so I, I wanted to do all that. And Batman, uh, of course, Batman. So I thought it was great because they all had these amazing abilities to walk silently, to have these amazing fights, to end a fight instantly. There was this mysticism involved. And so they were like, had superpowers, quote unquote, but they were human. They weren't in turning invisible or flying. They were doing things that were totally within the, the scope of human experience. And that's, that's what turned me on. Because I had tried everything. I tried being Aquaman. And take, I took swimming lessons. I took everything to become super. <laughs> <laughs> swimming lessons, martial arts lessons, archery. Uh, I studied sword and nunchucks, uh, anything I could. I was climbing and jumping off of trees and rooftops, uh, perfecting my three-point landing like Black Panther. You know, I just wanted to do everything. And um, it's a miracle in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just on your own. Forget, forget about organized theater. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is all before, you know, this is before 12 right. and, and I would make my friends train like X-Men, everything I learned in, in karate and, and Taekwondo, I'd make them learn it so we could go like rescue people somewhere. Like, come on, you, re you really just wanted to practice on them. <laughs> That's what ended up what happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what ended up happening. No, really, you can fly, you can fly, jump off the roof. <laughs> Well, you kind of actually fast forward. You've taken that uh, that approach and kind of formed your own Justice League, if you, if I might say, with Uncle Dave's Fight House here. And just for you guys know, I'm not going to do any spoilers. Dave is Uncle Dave <laughs> in Uncle Dave's Fight House. Or correct me if I'm wrong, sir. Do you have an Uncle Dave hidden somewhere? No, I am Uncle Dave. Uncle spelled with a K for knuckle. What Uncle Dave's Fight House is a uh, a collective of fight and intimacy directors devoted to an inclusive safe story-based approach to fictional violence and intimacy. The Collective actually worked on Broadway. Uh, you had uh, The Girl from the North Country. Yeah, The Girl from the North Country was our, was our last one. And you, in your first one I saw as well, Disgraced. Yay! Yeah, that was fun. So how did Uncle Dave's Fight House come about? <clears throat> Besides getting people in your adult life to do things <laughs> to, to, be, to beat up <laughs> or to practice on? Well, I had been doing fight direction on my own for a few years. And Labyrinth Theater Company gave me my first opportunities. Uh, like they called me in and they were like, Dave, we need somebody like, show us how to beat somebody with a nightstick for this John Patrick Shanley play. And I knew how to do that. So that was my first, my first job. And then Lou Moreno at Rattlestick said, hey, can you stage a slap for a Lucy Thurber play? And so I did that. It was funny, like, you know, I just did it because I, I knew how and they were my friends. But then, the third time around, which was for Bob Glaudini's play, Dutch Heart of Man, they offered me my first paycheck. And I thought, oh, and it was more than I expected. 
<laughs> and I was like, I think there's something here. <laughs> but then as word got out and people saw the shows and I was continuing to act, I was finding it difficult to do both, especially when I was working regionally as an actor. So I realized I either had to give up those opportunities to other fight directors, fight choreographers, or take a leap and expand. And so I took a risk because the whole thing about doing fight direction was a risk that was challenged to me by my buddy Alfredo Narciso because I was sick of working in bars. I'd come home at four in the morning and it took me two hours to unwind and the whole next day was shot. And Alfredo was like, why don't you just do that as your job, do fight choreography. And I was like, well, what if it doesn't work out? And he was like, then go back to the bars. The bars will be there. But so that's what happened. Opportunities kept presenting themselves and I decided to keep taking chances and the chances paid off. And I decided to go for a very specific team. And the team was going to be people that I already had relationships with and liked working with. And I knew that they had this sort of skill set that has constantly been overlooked. Like they were really good at, at gymnastics or they had Russian physical training or they had sword work in their background. And so I was like, they don't get to show that skill off. And so like, I'm going to find ways for all this to happen. And, it, and then it turned out that everyone on my team is, is either a person of color or LGBTQ, or in my case, both. And so that's where I found, oh, not only am I putting together a team of friends with a good skill set, but I'm also like changing who gets to create violence at the highest level of the American theater and who gets to help navigate some of the most dangerous moments of, of a play, of a story, of a film, uh, help actors potentially of color and, and LGBTQ navigate those things with people who look like them. So that it's creating a layer of empathy. It's a layer of safety that didn't really exist before that. That's pretty amazing. It really is amazing. Fight direction and intimacy direction are both about handling very direct contact between actors, which is something, of course, recently has been problematic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, do you have any sense of what these jobs will look like going forward in the world of COVID? I'm already working on that for myself, for my team, because what I always did, uh, and which I found that other intimacy directors didn't do, I always went in with another person for my team whether it was for, for fights or intimacy. And I always did that for several reasons. One, for accountability and for everyone's safety so that if an actor um, got injured uh, or, or started feeling uncomfortable, they said, well, you told me to hold my wrist like this and now it hurts. And, and then I had another pair of eyes and ears for my teammate who, who worked with me on the project and they would say like, actually, Dave told you to keep, keep your wrist the other way. And that's what you didn't do so that there's, there's accountability on, on several levels. Sometimes in navigating like intimacy, because I, I, I have people on my team, my team is not all comprised of cis-bodied male members. So like I ask them, I go, for this intimacy, do you have a preference? I ask the director and the playwright and the actors, do you have a preference as to the gender of the intimacy director? Do you, do you prefer a woman? Do you prefer non-binary? Do you prefer male or it doesn't matter to you? And so like they have an option with my team and then they, they make their choice and then we proceed there. And I feel like that helps a lot. You give the 
especially the actors who have to perform the, the choreography, you give them agency. And you lay down, you lay down sort of like the array of tools that they can employ for themselves of consent, of safety, of rehearsal during a run, and all of these things that they have agency to ask for and revisit and change if needed. That's another thing I offer is I offer my contact with a project through closing night, which isn't always the case. And so if something happens in their real life and it, it starts affecting their performance, we can revisit the work and the scene and I can help them. That's great, man. I'll tell you what, it's, it's, about, your, it's about self-health, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have to tell the story and they have to be able to be in a place to tell a story repeatedly. And so that can bring up all kinds of things that, that they may not even know that they're there on a conscious level. And, and so that's our job is to help them navigate that. You know, and people should understand too, is we work in the ephemeral. It's like, it's not just all on the surface. There's a lot of different emotions, spirituality happening at the same time that to go back to the Greeks, we're conjuring the gods in many ways to give us what we need at that time. And those moments to, to create that spirit and that create that urgency in the story. It can be shamanistic in experience, yeah. David, it's always great to see you. Uh, there's so much we didn't get a chance to discuss. But where can listeners find more about your work and upcoming projects when they do come around? Where can we send them online? For upcoming projects, there's UncleDaves.com. And for my projects, which I actually got to put on the website, <laughs> DavidAnzuelo.com. It's amazing when you do that, they actually find you. <laughs> Well, thank you, David. Listeners will have those links up for you on our on-air website. I want to thank David Enzuelo for joining me here on this Artist Spotlight edition of In What Artworks On Air, where we introduce you to the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes that make their home here in upstate Manhattan. Be sure to follow us on Inwood Artworks and inwoodartworks.nyc to keep up with all we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. And also stay tuned for more episodes of Artist Spotlight. Thanks again to 809 Restaurant and Lounge here at 112 Dykeman Street here at Inwood NYC for hosting us. Inwood Artworks is all about supporting local businesses, and we hope you are too. So this is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air. Thanks for listening to this Artist Spotlight edition of In What Artworks On Air. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And stay tuned for more Artist Spotlight and live and local episodes monthly from In What Artworks. In What Artworks On Air is made possible with funds from the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thanks again, David. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> nerded out big time. We totally nerded out. <laughs>